Verses 8 through 13, the title of this message is Encouragement and Endurance, Part 2. Now, Christian, this morning, before we go into the reading of the Word, I, a couple of questions for you. Do you thank God? I mean, is this a regular part of your daily routine? Has it come to the point where it is uh, just second nature to thank God for a variety of things? Not only big answers to prayer, but daily uh, blessings for food, for providence, for answering prayer, for protection. Do you praise him? When we sing in church, are you singing? And are you singing for joy up to and unto the Lord? Why? Why do you do so? Or if not, why not? Why is it not easy to do? Why does it not become second nature? And to that end of both, this text today the application is worship. It should inform our worship, uh, not only corporately as a church, but also individually daily. This end, the encouragement that Paul gives in this passage, notice the benediction as we get there is not 10 points on how to be unified and how to end racial strife or ethnic um, tension but it is ultimately a call to worship the Lord for what he has already done in his great plan. So to this end, please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans 15, 8 through 13. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you amongst the Gentiles and sing your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Verse 12, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Now the Roman world, the Roman world, the dominant um, empire, not only politically, but in authority and culturally and religiously in the, in the world that, uh, that certainly the Jews would have been born into under Roman rule, but also any of the Gentiles would have been part of. The Roman world, particularly in the church in Rome here, in the, in the capital city, this culture would have been a culture which was ready, which was made for endless ethnic enmity. Meaning there would have been, a, there was a rigid, to a certain degree, class structure, ethnic structure amongst the people groups. And within the church, it would have been a recipe for endless warfare and tension amongst the classes. This is a perfect circumstance for the current cultural Marxist. For the therapeutic prescription to triumph. 
See, they might say, we were right. Some differences cannot be overcome except through war, conflict, laws, divisions, and reparations. There is just too many differences in the Roman church between Jews and Gentiles. There is permanent ethnic disharmony. Shouldn't even try to unify. But friends, God is not a Marxist. He doesn't bring happiness through endless class warfare and through theft, enslavement, and revolution. He does not say that there are permanent winners and there are permanent losers. God is not woke. He doesn't believe one group owes another or that one group is closer to justification and less sinful because they are the minority or the victim class. God is also not nihilistic. He is not hopeless. He does not prescribe that each group is maybe to just, there's too many differences to overcome. So let's live in the same town, but let's live on different sides of the tracks. Just pretending that everything's fine or coming to an uneasy peace, even within the church. You, you sit on one side of the aisle, you sit on another. We'll worship together. We may have to technically love each other, but we're not going to like each other. Right? There are two, some things that are just too different. In the Church of Rome, friends, God designed its makeup. Remember the text of Scripture. That we're going to memorize in the next week. Every decision is from the Lord. If you believe in God, be informed that you believe in a God who is sovereign. And what we mean by sovereign, he doesn't just generally have power over the world, but he actually orchestrates his power and he plans and chooses. So every church, this is the church that God has chosen. The people that are here today, you are the exact people that God has chosen to be here today. We don't make up the makeup of the church. When the word of God goes forth, the spirit draws and he draws sometimes in expected ways maybe and other times in very surprising ways. 20 years ago, would you have thought you were going to be here today? 10 years ago, were you in the kingdom of God at all? Or were you living your life in a way it was contrary to the Lord until the Lord tripped you up and brought you into his own and now gave you the body of Christ, the church? And since God has designed the makeup in this particular church in Rome to include Jews and Gentiles within the same church who would have been probably in some ways to a certain degree sworn enemies, right? Or at least, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, they would have lived in such different lifestyles that you never, I mean, it would have been, even if they weren't at enmity, it would have been very hard to you know, consolidate uh, this within the same church. Not only has God designed his makeup to include both, but he doesn't victimize one group. He doesn't shame another. You can look through the text of scripture. And I challenge you, and I challenge you to take your new Marxist friends who have been awakened by all these new ideas on social justice and show them from scripture, where does God ever prescribe the same way our world prescribes? That one group is just a perpetual victim because of their skin color. That's too easy. That's simplistic. That's lame, right? God has a different plan. He doesn't shame one group over another. He doesn't give the option of a church split, nor does he give any sense that there are any unhappy conflicts that are unsolvable. Now, there may be conflicts, but here in this text particularly, not only are these not unsolvable conflicts, but they should not be unsolvable. They're absolutely part of God's design. And God's design was for unity and here glory and praise. 
and mission. And that the church would be one in which the Holy Spirit's power is present. The opposite. Instead of just saying, well, you know, we just, I mean, we just, we just can't get along. We're going agree to agree to disagree in this. The opposite is true. There are duties for each and every Christian. These duties include that which grows us in unity. It includes that which brings joy and peace and friendship. It is a duty of working together. Love is what should be expected in the body of Christ. So the question is, how do you get there? How do you solve conflict? And here, the nature of it would be serious conflict, ethnic conflict, even cultural conflict between groups. How do you do that? Well, there's another of pres- an, an, a number of prescriptions. I suppose Paul could have made a list of maybe the top ten ideas. But here, Paul doesn't do that. Notice what he does here. He tells a story. He tells them the great story, the story that they are now part of. Or we might say he summarizes the story. This is a story with real power, which is radical and prescriptive and actually works. You know this line, it began with the forging of a great ring or the great ring. When I say that, everybody knows what that, or most people know what that's from, the Lord of the Rings. Fellowship of the Ring. And in the same way here, what Paul does in this text is, as he brings them to that point to say, look, you are not only, God has made up this church, but under the gospel, you are to be unified. And you are to be joyful. For your encouragement and endurance, what he does here is he says, let me tell you the story. Let me tell you why. It is not accidental that Jews and Gentiles are together in this church. And why there are not two plans or two different ways. This text is a summary of what we call salvation history. Now you need to understand, friends, there are two ways of reading the Bible. And both are legitimate ways of reading the Bible. Both are ways that we should read the Bible. The first is you read the Bible cover to cover and then you look back and you go, man, what did I read? (laughs) I forgot. And we call this doctrine, right? Theology. So in bite-sized theology in our Sunday school class, we're going to study a summary of Scripture in, under the category today. We're going to talk about the, the, the doctrine of God. So as we look through Scripture, as we kind of summarize Scripture, what do we learn about God? Next week, Trinity. What do we learn about the Godhead? What do we learn about sin? So doctrines are the individual topics that Scripture, a summary of those individual topics that Scripture is full of. Every topic under the sun. Now that's doctrine, and that's Very, very important. That is crucial. But there's another way of telling this story. Or there's another way of reading scripture. And that is a storyline. That is from A to to Z and not doctrinally, not topically, not like an encyclopedia, but like Lord of the Rings or one of the great novels. We call this salvation history. That Jesus Christ certainly is the center and the main part of the story. But the story didn't begin with Jesus. It began with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And it tells a story of what Jesus had to do to save the people, why he mattered, why it needed to be Jesus, why it needed to be truly man and truly God. And what was the enmity in the world in which Jesus came as the great hero to conquer? This is the story the Bible tells, and particularly here, what is the story the Bible tells? Why can we therefore infer and take that this church in Rome, Jews and Gentiles, are exactly the church that God has made them to be, not with two different types of people, one like class A and one class, one the junior varsity, the Gentiles, 
But this is according to God's plan and according to God's story. And who are the players in the story? And ultimately for you and for I, what is your place in the story? Where are we at in salvation history today? The title of this message, of course, is Encouragement and Endurance Part 2. For as in verses 1 through 7, it ends here in verse, now here in verse 13, just like verse 7 ended, it ends with a similar benediction. A charge from Paul under the authority and the knowledge of God's gospel. If you look at verse 7, that first part, Encouragement and Endurance uh, part one, which is verse one through seven, it ended with a call to have hope in living in the local church. So meaning God will unify you. He can unify you. Tell you to treat one another. And now verse 13, we live, we have hope in the li- living in the plan of God for the local church and the bigger picture and the bigger story. Where does the church fit in? Verse, uh, if you look back at Romans uh, chapter 15, verse five, Look at verse 5 here. It says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So the, the goal here would be, look, you and I are to live in such harmony that we may that God would be pleased, that it would glorify the name of God, that God would look good, that with one voice of unity, and are, to that end, are we doing this as a congregation? Is this happening? To what extent is this happening? And are, what is your participation in that unity? Is your voice glorifying the Lord? Are your actions and participation glorifying the Lord as a part of this church? So that's, that's verse 7, and now we get to the end. It's, um, so again, verse 1 through 7 is, it, it really, we might say the summary is hope and living today are applying these truths. Verse 8 through 13 is hope and believing for tomorrow. Where are we in the story? Is this a story? Is, this, is it worth it to work, look for unity in the church? Is it worth it to be part of the body of Christ? Is this part of God's eternal plan? Are we part of that today? Here in 2023. Now to this end, here's what Paul reminds us here. It is worth it because God saves individuals, but they are individuals from every nation, such as that he will eventually save the nations. Here we see people group, tongue, tribe, and nation are all synonymous. And what he's reminding them here is that God's story started with the Jewish people, but it includes all people. And as we've already Heard in Romans that the truest Jewish people, you can be ethnically Jew and really not be truly Jewish. Truly Jewish is not physical circumcision that mattered, but it was circumcision of the heart. Even in the Old Testament, there were many people who had all of the right pedigree and the right ethnicity who did not obey the Lord and did not follow God. Because really, God doesn't look here at the skin color or the ethnic makeup. He looks at what's going on in the heart, and your heart will eventually betray itself. It will show itself in your actions and your attitudes. Now, when we talk about this, the the theme of this is we're talking again about what do we do with the different ethnicities? Now, ethnicity could be described by skin color, but it is obviously more than this. Ethnicity could also be including the culture, your people group, your geography. Jewish people were not merely, you could tell they were Jewish because they looked different than Gentiles. Certainly there was a Jewish look, they were an ethnicity, but it was far more than that. It was a culture, a religion, how they acted, how they taught, how they thought, their worldview. And the same with 
the Roman worldview, the pluralistic Roman worldview versus the monotheistic ethnic Jewish worldview. But I want you to think about this. Let's say tomorrow that you were dropped, you were, for whatever reason, your work transferred you to the, the nation of Iceland. Okay? Just bear with me here. Okay? Ironically, 85% of Iceland claims Christianity, although it's been said it's the most atheistic nation in Western Europe functionally. Um, for example, and, and, and what has happened is Iceland has become so atheistic that they're seeing the fruit of that. Only 29.5% of babies were born to married parents. Um, I read this absolutely chilling article recently that said Iceland has eradicated Down syndrome. Well, it doesn't take much to figure out how they eradicated Down syndrome, right? There's pre prenatal testing, and so they abort every Down syndrome child that would be undesirable to a certain degree. That's the atheistic, godless worldview. In a nation of several hundred thousand, there are less than, it's been told, 300 true Christians, so to speak, even though 85% claim Christianity. So it was interesting, at the fire conference I went to three weeks ago, one of our, um, a guy, part of, member of a fire church, they are going as a missionary to Iceland to support the local church there. And when I say local church, the local church. So if you were going to go to Iceland, you would have several, and you're a Christian, you have several choices. Or one of two choices. You could attend a mainline liberal or state church, a state-approved church. It's really become a fake church, which preaches a false gospel and does the dictates of the state. They're just liberal, just like we'd have in America. That's all you have. Or, in a nation of Iceland, you could choose the one evangelical reformed church that exists in Iceland. And there's only one of them. And it was interesting that the, the missionary was telling me that in that church, there's about 100 people in the church and it's something like 15 different language groups in that church of 100 people. Um, anybody, because Iceland has become an increasingly um, global nation. People are sending immigrants to Iceland. But if there's anybody who comes as a Christian, that, that's the only church option they have. So they said, it's glorious, but it's very difficult. They've got, because of technology, they've got all these, in their service, they've got these um, instant AI interpretive things now. Uh, so you can hear in your own language because there's, 15, I mean, you can imagine, um, you know, uh, the makeup of the church is four people that speak the same language and then four other people that speak another language and all these different things. But, you know, it's interesting. Why, why do people choose to go there and not stay home or go there and not go to a mainline church? I think it's, it's, it's obvious. If, if you are a Christian and the spirit of God is, will move you to join the local church and you are willing to be going to an area that's even maybe uh, uncomfortable in your natural sense for you because you want to worship God together. Right? You, you, you probably get that, right? Ethnicity and your culture matters, but you're for an environment where it's to choose between the true worship of God and you're the only person who <laughs> comes to your background. I mean, I think we'd choose that one if you, let's say you were go to another nation and there was a bunch of people from America there, but they were all part of a church that was very weak and theologically liberal. And yet there was... Um, a really sound church is one made up of all the local people. They didn't even speak your language. Which one would you go to? And yet they were sound doctrinally and worshiped the God. You would go to the local one. You would go to the one that you're a foreigner because you know they would try to care for you and help you out. But you'd want to be in the one where you got to worship God truly and, and, and reverently. It's interesting. Um, and the choice is obvious. 
God brings in a new people, but it's from many nations. He creates his makeup, and the way that the Spirit has designed it, people are willing to join a church, even if it's not like them. Because that's what God has done when he creates us new in Christ. He's made a new people out of two. Where in, ironically, the, 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 the Bible says there are two types of people, but it's not about skin color. It's whether you're in Adam or in Christ. Because in our natural sense, we are exactly alike every other human being on the planet before Christ. Whether you're from the inner city or from the rural country. You were born in sin and at enmity with God, Romans 3. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Now, you may look different and you may act differently, but in that way, every human being is exactly alike. You're under God's judgment. And yet, when God saves a person, you now become newly alike. So we have far more in common with a fellow believer in Guam, so to speak, than your neighbor down the street who doesn't know Christ and yet cheers for the Vikings like you do. And this is the makeup of the church in Rome. And it's not easy. And yet here, Paul doesn't spend three pages on kind of the therapeutic view of, well, let's talk about how hard it's going to be and how stressful it's going to be. And you gotta, what do you got to overcome? And how much, you know, what are the different types of counseling things you can do to help each other? The personality profiles, yada, yada, yada. No, he doesn't say any of that, does he? He reminds him of the story and the truth. And it works. I was listening to a, a lecture by Phil Johnson, John MacArthur's assistant. He was saying that the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which is where Charles Spurgeon was the pastor back in 1850s, 1880s. Um, you know, sadly, a lot of those churches from that era that were sound at the time, your churches tend to have a shelf life, even local churches. Some have gone very liberal. Some don't exist anymore. Well, the Metropolitan, the Metropolitan Tabernacle is still a rock-solid church. And they've had the same pastor there. His name is... Peter Masters, he's not a, he's a fairly well-known Reformed Baptist voice, but not one that we hear a lot about in America. Um, and the interesting thing Bill Johnson talks about, when you go to that church, it's in London. I mean, they practice the regular principle of worship. They take out hymn books. They, you know, they, they sing. He, 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 he's constantly shepherding his congregation in the Second London Confession. I mean, he is, they are not trying to be cute or, um, you know, kind of, trying the latest idea of worship, or anything. and they've been doing this since 1970. He's been the pastor there for years. And, and Phil says the irony there is if you go there, it's an incredibly diverse group of people, ethnically. He said you got people from all, all kinds of skin colors, all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different tribes and nations. He, says, and he said the great irony is this, when you actually do things by God's word and his way, over time... The diversity that the Lord brings, because that's who God chooses to save, is incredible. And the people, because of the truth, are willing to work together to say, this is where we want to be, because we, we don't want to be anywhere else. Isn't that the great irony of today? And yet, here in Scripture, we see that that's glorious. That's the way the Lord designed it. Certainly in Minnesota, and, you know, <laughs> we don't have that level of diversity here in northern Minnesota, but there are other ways of diversity, socioeconomic, background, all these other things, but the principles are the same. The goal is the same, unity. Unity despite our background, maybe theological background, maybe church background. We are to, under Christ, under the banner, to be one in Christ and to, gl and, and to glory in this. Because here's the story. 
We're part of the great story. The story from Genesis 1 through 3 is that humanity is sinful in Adam. And yet Christ became the new Adam, meaning he entered the world through Mary's womb, but being she being a virgin, so he's put there by the Holy Spirit, so he did not inherit the sin nature that every child has inherited, the bent of sin that you that, that is corrupt and fallen even in the womb. And those beautiful babies are born sinners. Because Adam failed to obey God. He refused God's covenant. He disobeyed. So, so when Jesus came, remember, he didn't come merely, you know, sent to earth 30 years old so he could, you know, be a sacrifice and then go back uh, to heaven. No, he, he had to be born of a virgin. He lived a full and sinless life. Where God had once formed Adam from dust, made him a human being, he now put Jesus in the womb as a human being, but one that had not inherited the sin nature. That's crucial. So when you are a Christian, it's because you have been chosen by God and you are identified with the second Adam. The second Adam who lived a full and perfect life for you, dying on the cross for your sins at the great exchange and giving you the rewards of his righteous life. That is the gift of Christianity. That is what makes you a new creation. So those that are in Christ, those who have been born again by the Spirit, you know this and you grow in this. And you are now part of the body of Christ. And in this sense, friends, as we tell the story, we recognize here that Jesus was, in this sense, he was neither, even though he was Jewish, in, a, in an ethnic sense, in another sense, he was neither Jew nor Gentile. He was the Savior of all. He was the second, the new, the last Adam. He was the son of David and the rod of Jesse who conquered he was the lamb who was slain and resurrected. He was, is the king crowning and reigning for whom though? Not for Jewish people, but for all the nations. For those in the new Adam, for the true church, of which that includes Jewish background and Gentile background. But the thing that unites is Christ. Look at verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So what he's doing here, and as we walk through this text, um, he is reminding us of salvation history. Why is it the way your church is today? Because God's, the great story of salvation, what Christ has done and why he did what he did. Salvation history began with God and his covenant with Adam. Adam broke the first covenant. God made a second covenant, a covenant of grace. It began to take shape and manifest amongst the people in Abraham. Remember from Genesis 12 on where God chose one man. He said, from you. He didn't choose Abraham because Abraham had any sort of special gifting. He just chose Abraham. And because of anything he had done, he said, from you I will make a mighty nation. God made a promise. How did he keep it? At the cross and resurrection... Where Jesus Christ became the confirmation, the covenant keeper. But that is not the complete story. The nation that God was giving, of, giving to Abraham was not an ethnic nation of just Abraham's kin biologically. But they were a spiritual nation, a real and spiritual nation. The church of God. The people that God had chosen. For God certainly... Christ kept God's promise and he showed him these people 
who are in the Spirit, who are born again by God, they are truly the family of God. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord as the song we once sung in Sunday school said. But we're reminded here that salvation history did not end at the cross of Christ. Nor did God's promises, in one sense, end there. And it was all over. He did everything he said he was going to. No, God is keeping his promises in new and complete ways. He kept this promise to Abraham, and there the Jews can hope, right? It's worth following the Lord. He kept his promise to Abraham, but he also included the Gentiles in this promise. The longtime enemy of Israel, the sinners, those outside of the covenant. He kept a promise. He said, you will be included as well. Why? Verse 9, because he's a God of mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. You don't, get, you don't deserve, and you and I are Gentiles, we don't deserve to be part of God's people. We don't deserve God's grace. We deserve hell. We, de- we don't deserve, even as Christians, to continue to have God showers of the blessings of his church and forgiveness in the spirit. We get this because God is a God of mercy. It is his work. He is the one who keeps his promise. He is the one who is saved and will sanctify. And the salvation history will be fulfilled when his last promise is fulfilled. It's not over yet. But how will it be fulfilled? The the cross of Christ is past history. The resurrection is a reality. The enemy has been dealt a death blow. The death blow. So today, how is it being fulfilled and will it be fulfilled? And where does the church fit in? Where does Paul say, this is why you can have unity? This is why you shouldn't fight. This is why you shouldn't get along. This is why you shouldn't do a church split. Why does he say that? Because you are actually part of the salvation history of God. You are part of the mission today. Not the mission 2,000 years ago, but the part of the mission today. Remember John 10, 16? Jesus said to them, to the disciples, and I don't know that they, I'm not sure if they would have understood this at the time. We certainly can now. I suppose they should have. He said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd. Who is Jesus talking about? He's talking about his people, his sheep. Not sheepfold A and sheepfold G, but B, but his people. He has one people, true Israel, and those that listen to God's voice are part of the people of God, the true Israel. Jews and Gentiles. He is now drawing in the Gentiles. His mission now, as Paul's already said, is it's, it's not just a, a, a mission amongst ethnic Israel or amongst the nation of Israel, but it's to the world, to the Gentile nations and people groups. So what is happening in the story, most importantly, as we turn the pages, what is our reaction? What do we do? What is the response? Look at verse 9b. He says this, As it is written, therefore I will praise you amongst the Gentiles and sing your name. And what Paul does here is he gives five Quotes from the Old Testament from all the different genres. History, poetry, law, prophecy. And he says, look, this is not accidental that the Gentiles are now part of the church. This was God's plan. 
They are here because of God's mercy. You are here because of God's mercy. You are all together. There's not uh, group 1 and group 1A or 1B. You are all part of the people of God so that nobody would be proud, that all would be humble. 2 Samuel 22, 49 is this first quote. It said, um, Who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me against, amongst those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, amongst the nations. Sing praises to your name. Psalm 18, 47. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued people under me. Who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this reason, I will praise you, O Lord, amongst the nations and sing your name. So what he is recounting here is all of those passages that remind us in the Old Testament that God is actually going to be exalted amongst the nations, not merely in judgment, which is certainly he gets exalted in judgment, but in mercy. And then every time the response is praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Look at verse 10. It says, Again, he said this, rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. This is from Deuteronomy 32, 43. That's what he's quoting. It says, rejoice with him, O heavens, and bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children, takes vengeance on his enemies. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. So it says to the Gentiles, look, you can rejoice at the people of God that God has defeated your enemies. For your enemies and Israel's enemies are the same enemies. They are those who would oppose God. The wicked rulers of, of this earth, the status leaders of this earth, the wicked men and women who thwart the plan of God and would suppress the plan of God. Verse 11, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let the nations extol him. That's from Psalm 117.1, verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even the, he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. Now, the root of, root of Jesse he's talking about here is it's not, not merely the promise to Abraham, but within the people of Abraham, there was a royal line. It started with Jesse. And David was of that line. And from them, God brought about as the people became an, a nation, not enslaved and not wandering in, you know, in the wilderness, but then into the nation or into the promised land. Then he set up a nation where they had a king. And Jesus, as you know, was of the line of David, both through Mary, but also through Joseph. And he was a descendant, a direct descendant of David, so he could fulfill that royal line ethnically. But his kingship would extend not merely to the Jewish people, but to the world, to all the nations. He was of a spiritual kingdom that is manifest in physical ways now. As he is reigning over the nations, he's bringing nations in subjection to his, um, to his law and rule, including our own nation. Revelation 22.16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. So in summary here, in five times the word Gentiles are referenced. This is a deep call to ponder the mercies of God for you and for me. You and I who are Gentiles, this is a reminder. All of the history of the Old Testament, all of salvation history included the people of God. All that God did was so that he could save a people. And you and I are of the people of God if we are in Christ. Our salvation was not happenstance. 
It wasn't merely the Holy Spirit breathing upon us and bringing us to life. It's certainly that's what happened. But it happened according to all that God has done. You and I are not saved because all of a sudden in 2023, God chose to save us and just zap us free from guilt. We are saved because 2,000 years ago we had a Savior who died on the cross and now in real time applies it to our life. There was always a people of God from before time began and you and I are amongst them. The application of this text certainly is applied to how we treat one another. But it is first and foremost applied in how we think about one another and how we think about ourselves. Right thinking will always lead to right application. Wrong application is based upon acting on our feelings, but not on right thinking. This is all under Romans 12, 1 and 2. Because of the mercy of God, you can, I can actually know the word of God and orient our minds to think rightly. And the right thinking is here. Consider how you got here. Consider what God's plan is. Consider who the makeup of the church is. There may be people who annoy you more than others, but they are believers in Christ. You will be together in eternity. And they are here by the same reason. Jesus Christ, according to the plan of God. This is a moral call to apply in relationship to one another. This we should say, because it's been repeated five times, you know, the Gentiles, the Gentiles, the Gentiles, the Gentiles, and the Gentiles, this is a truth to underline, memorize, from which to build confidence. You have this mercy now. You are part of God's plan. Friends, you and I today, we are on the pages of the great story. Now we are nearing the end. Far more than they were when they, when this was written 2,000 years ago. We are closer to eternity than they were. We don't know how long it will go on. But we know that we are in the story. This is our generation, our day to live and propagate and be the people of God in this life here and now. Our grandparents are gone. Our great-grandparents are gone. We have grandchildren who are not yet born. But today it is our day to be the people of God and to be the people of God and to be the people of God that God has called us to be. In sanctification means pondering the great mercies of God and the great plan of God. Why in this church, why we spend time, why our, our focus and our, and our foundation will be and will always be preaching the scripture, learning about the Bible, learning not only doctrinally all the different truths and doctrines, but the bigger story. Because you've got to know where you fit into it. And this orients and changes everything. It means you do not have a purposeless life. You do not have to give in to the nihilistic calls of the culture, the woke culture. They will not win. God wins. He has won. He will continue to win. We don't know how that's going to happen. We don't know if our nation in America is going to fall apart or be restored and renewed. We hope it will be restored and renewed. But we do know there's a people of God and God is bringing all the Gentiles in and he is subduing the world. And you and I are part of that. And at that end, the other People in the church are part of that. And we can have unity because of that. The church may not look impressive. But it is built upon the foundations of the God-man Jesus Christ. And will be sustained by the promises of the Holy God. 
Our town Crosby, I don't know what the population is now, 2,500, 3,000 in Crosby. There are 70 of us in here today, 65 of us in here today. We are just one building. We take up two or three lots in one city block. And all of us are gathered here today. And in one sense, in, 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 in proportion to the city of Crosby, we are tiny. And we know we are part of God's plan here. And God's plan not for judgment, but for salvation and restoration. And what we do here when we gather is more than just you and I seeing each other face to face. It is part of singing the great story of worshiping God. Being a counter-cultural uh, and yet part of God's true culture, his true plan. The people of God at peace with God because of Christ. We will be sustained by the promises of a holy God who has chosen to love sinners for his glory. Now, as we draw to a conclusion, there are passages of scripture that have easy application, right? If we were going to go to 1 Timothy and maybe chapter 6 and talk about widows and singles and everybody in the church and there's all these different, you know, kind of Point one, point two, here's what you're to do, here's what you're to do, here's what you're to do, apply, 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 or some of the marriage passages, here's what you're to do in this situation, in that situation, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, all these places. Um, there are plenty of those, even in Romans, we've already covered some of those, we're going to cover more of those. But this is one of those passages where the application is not, here's ten things you're to do, the application is a call to worship. It's a benediction. It's a vertical application. It's lifting your hearts and minds to Christ and then being humbled by that. Look at verse 13 as he concludes after he said this. Here's what he says. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now if you believe what God has said here, May you be filled. That belief is not merely an intellectual belief. A cold intellectual. You have the right knowledge, but it is a living belief. And it fills you. That knowledge frees you and fills you. It is the way in which God fills you with hope and joy and believing. How does the Holy Spirit work in power? He works in power by giving you hope. And not just merely fleeting hope, but abounding in hope. Hopeful people are confident people and confident people can take out all the different challenges the enemy the enemy throws at us and the struggles of the heart and the conflicts in our lives because we have hope and peace in the great plan of God and that we are part of this war and peace work and rest setbacks and success investment and return battle and victory all these are part of our lives and what is your place in the story? Now certainly the implication here would be there should be no silly, sinful conflict within the church because of peculiarities within what the ethnicities or people's backgrounds bring. They're going to work out. They're going to work out if we love each other. And we only love each other if we're informed by the great story if we worship God together. We know the truth and the truth will set us free. So here, it's not merely to know, to know the goal of salvation, but it is to worship God because of this. As we draw to conclusion, 
If you ever want to, if you ever get asked the question, how does the Holy Spirit work today? Well, certainly more than, but it's not less than this. The Holy Spirit works as God fills you with all joy and peace and believing. That's how the Holy Spirit works. And the Holy Spirit works in that he abounds us in hope, fills us with hope, with peace. We obey and we apply as dutiful servants because of the victories of God. This is why it's important also that we sing together here on earth. It is choir practice for the great worship service. We sing with our mixed voices, some I'm sure better than others, but we can sing truly and honorably and fully unto the Lord, regardless of whether we ever get uh, recruited for a concert series or record an album. Because it is a call to worship. It's called to lift our voices to the Lord, to worship God. We are a worshiping warriors, a singing people. So we can praise God as we draw to conclusion that there is victory and there is an end. And yet along that, we are nearer today than we were before. Everything that God has done in this church is according to his plan. Including and underline that Gentiles are part of his plan. This was always God's plan. So friends, today, worship the Lord. Have a confidence in the God who actually saves people. And he has saved you and me and he will continue to save you and me. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for gathering us together today. And I pray that you give us joy and hope in believing that with one voice we may glorify your name. And now as we take Holy Communion, I pray that you would help us to lift up our hearts and minds to Christ. To what you have done in ages past, but now informing that we are here today in confidence that you will, you have begun a good work, will carry to completion. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.